I'm certain this is familiar territory for each and every person here today. But it never grows old. It's like the fellow said, whenever the water at the well is good, the path will be well worn. And so there's a reason why year after year that preachers keep going back to this great chapter. John chapter number 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, Unto thee ye must be born again. Many years ago, I had a dear preacher friend. He had been a school teacher in Harrison, Arkansas for several years. And uh, to make a long story short, he got saved. He had surrendered to preach, and he moved up into the area where we lived and pastored in Springfield, a man by the name of Leon Gray. And we were dear friends, and we loved to just sit around and talk about different things. And he, he always had some weird something or another to talk about, and he had a real dry sense of humor. You didn't know whether he was kidding or not, but he asked me one day, he said, have, have you ever heard of the Pulsed Baptist? I said, what? I mean, you know, I'd heard of Southern Baptist, I've heard of Northern Baptist and American Baptist and uh, all of these different Baptists. And I said, what kind? And Paul said, and I said, no, I don't guess I have. I, you know, what are they? He said, Paul said, these preachers that constantly, all they ever talk about is Paul said this and Paul said that. You know, there's a time and a place to do that, but sometimes we need to, we need to talk about what Jesus said. Amen? That's not to say that Paul was wrong, by the way, but it's real easy for us to lose sight of the fact that the final authority in all matters is Jesus Christ Himself. Now, of all of the chapters in the Bible that I could preach from, there's none better known than John chapter 3. Of all of the subjects that I could preach about, none are more important than our subject this morning. And of all of the people that could address this subject, none could do it so well as this one because Jesus himself is speaking about the subject of the new birth. Well, you say, well, preacher, this is Easter, I thought for sure. That you, you know, that you would talk to us about Easter and the resurrection this morning. Well, we might do that also, but listen, without, without the sacrifice of Christ, 
there would have been no need of a resurrection. I, I mean, there would have been no possibility of a resurrection because it was through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that salvation is possible. You, you, you see, here's what I'm concerned about this morning. You know, the Bible says the devil believes and trembles. Do you think for a moment that Satan doubts whether or not Christ was resurrected from the dead? Of course not. He, he knows. He has all the facts. He knows who Jesus is. He knows what Jesus did. He has all of those facts. He believes in the sense that he gives his intellectual assent to the historical facts. And that's exactly what a lot of folks do without ever actually trusting Christ as their Lord and Savior. And, and so we, we could celebrate this morning the resurrection of Christ as well. We should, but it's meaningless unless we have first been born again. And of all of the greatest scholars and orators and doctors that ever lived, none can compare to Jesus Christ himself. And no subject could be more important than these simple words where he says, ye must be born again. In doing that, he is addressing man's greatest need. Now, if you're familiar with this, this chapter, you know that, uh, that, you know, I could preach on it for months, literally. There have been entire books written just about verse number 16. But I've only got, you know, less than an hour to deliver my message. <laughs> and some of you, yeah, I've actually got more than that if I want it. But it's like somebody said, you know, the, the mind can absorb only what the seed of the britches can endure. So I realize that. So I'm not going to keep you here for an hour. And so I don't want to take up the whole day doing that. But listen, what concerns me more than that is the fact that I know I might never see some of you again. I mean, I could die. You could die. The Lord could come. A lot of different things could happen. We might, we might never see each other again. And I want to make certain, I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that before you leave here today, you know what Jesus said about being born again. Now, notice the man to whom Jesus was speaking. His identity is given here to us in verse number 1. He's a man with the name of Nicodemus, and he is no ordinary man. His name itself means superior. And those, you know, looking at him and those that knew about him, those familiar with him, they knew that from the fleshly standpoint, he was a man that had every reason to be proud. In the first place, he's a Jew. And you know how proud the Jews were of their heritage. They look back and they, you know, thinking of themselves as the chosen people of the Lord. And they, you know, had that self-righteous attitude anyway. And so he is a Jew, but he's not just a Jew. He is a Pharisee. That word literally means a separatist. He is the fundamentalist of that day so far as the Jews are concerned. More than that, it says that he is a teacher of the law. So he's a man of great influence. In fact, Mark calls him a ruler of the Jews. And so that indicates that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin uh, was what we might call a board that was made up 
of Jewish leaders. These are the people that served as a tribunal in judicial matters. They're the ones that had the final say in everything. And he is a part of that. This guy has everything that that most people were looking for. In addition to that, certain historians tell us that he was one of the three richest men in all Jerusalem. So all of the things that people are looking for... You know, Nicodemus could say, I've got all of those things. This is the fella that Jesus is dealing with. That's his identity. But notice his interest in verse number 2. It says that he came to Jesus. And the popularity of Jesus at that time was growing by leaps and bounds to the extent that it caused the religious leaders of that day great concern. They were scared to death. They were afraid they were going to lose their audience because they keep hearing about this man called Jesus and he's going about working miracles and, and all of a sudden Nicodemus has heard about it. In the first place, I think he felt compelled to investigate, considering his position. People are looking to him for guidance. People are looking to him as one of their rulers, one of their leaders, and so he feels compelled that I've got to investigate investigate this situation, but I think more than that, it was a matter of personal concern with Nicodemus. And I say that because you'll notice that he came to Jesus by night. He wants a personal interview with the Lord, but at this point, he really doesn't want anybody else to know that he is conversing with Jesus. So he comes to him by night and strikes up a conversation. I think the miracles of Jesus has convinced him that this is no ordinary man uh, that we're going to have to deal with. And, And so he comes to Jesus and he begins to inquire. He says, I know you must be a teacher sent from God. No man can do these miracles unless God is with him. Boy, there seems to be great admiration for Jesus, right? I mean, he hasn't spoken one critical word. It's all about admiring Jesus. And let me tell you, it takes more than the admiration of Jesus to get you to heaven. I've often said, you know, some people worship worship instead of the Lord. They really do. We live in a day like that. I wrote an article just the other day about feelings and people have become feelers instead of followers. And for them, it's all about the feeling they get. They don't care whether the preacher preaches the truth or not. They don't care about spiritual things. It's all about the feeling that they get. And that's that's what it's all about. And there are a lot of folks that speak about Jesus as being a great teacher, a miracle worker, a fine example, and all of those things. But listen, you've got to do more than admire Jesus in order to be a child of God. Now, notice the message, and it begins actually in verse number 3, because while Nicodemus is speaking, Jesus just interrupts him. And he turns his attention, notice, to the need for the new birth. Notice he did not congratulate him for being observant. You know, he could have said, Nick, I'll tell you what, uh, boy, you've got your act together. You've taken notice of the things that I've been doing you're not like a bunch of those other knuckleheads that haven't been paying attention. I mean, you, I, I, listen, I really appreciate you being so observant and taking note of the things that I've done. 
But Jesus didn't do that. Nor did he even thank Nicodemus for the compliment. He could have said, man, I tell you, I want to thank you because I've grown so weary. All of this traveling and what have you, and people don't really appreciate me. And I just want to thank you so much for the kind things that you've said. But listen, Jesus knew that Nicodemus was lost. And that's why he is pressing home the truth concerning the new birth. Forget all of that other stuff that they could be talking about. Jesus didn't want to engage in conversation about the fulfillment of past prophecies and all of those things. Jesus did not want to make some suggestions how they could get themselves out of bondage to the Roman government, how they could make this world a morally better place to live or anything like that. He just interrupts what Nicodemus is saying and says, You must be born again. Now the problem here, that's the message, but the problem is in verse number 4 where Nicodemus doesn't understand. He thinks the Lord is speaking about a physical birth. And so he says, well, how can a man be born again unless he enters the second time into his mother's womb? I mean, he knew that was impossible. But this, listen, this tells us a lot about Nicodemus, and it tells us a lot about the Jews of that day. For them, religion was an external thing, something to be seen, something to be felt. It wasn't internal. It wasn't spiritual. And so he's thinking about physical things, external things, and this is a good example of how confused religious people can be. A lot of times we just assume so-and-so is going to go to heaven because after all, they're religious. In fact, they're not just religious. Boy, they're Baptists. They must be going to go to heaven, huh? Ah, they're independent, unaffiliated Baptists, just like those folks at Lakeway. They must be, they must be going to heaven. But I'm telling you, some of the most confused people in all of the world are religious people. In fact, I've got to say, I don't think anything's more confusing in all of the world than religion. You, You see, the Lord didn't come to establish a religion. He came to establish a relationship. And it's all about what is inside of us. It's not that which can be seen, felt, and heard so much as it is what's going on inside of us. So Nicodemus is thinking about another Another uh, physical birth. Do you think that would solve the problem? No, it wouldn't, would it? You could, listen, even if it was possible for you to be born again physically, a new physical birth, that wouldn't solve your problems. You know what you would do? you would turn around and make the same foolish mistakes you made the first time. You'd turn right around and flaunt your sin in the face of God, rebel against the authority of God, ignore the love of God. You'd do the same thing. And and, and the reason why is because man doesn't need a new start. He needs a new heart. He needs a new nature. And that's what the new birth is all about. Now notice in verse 5, 6, 7, and 8, I want you to pay attention to what Jesus says in these verses. Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, I know 
I know some of you are thinking right now, oh, great, he's going to explain all about this water and spirit and what have you and exactly what it means. Let me, no, I'm not, because I don't want you to get sidetracked here. And sometimes it's better to know what something doesn't mean than what it does mean. We could debate, you know, and people have, preachers have. Whenever he says, be born of water, somebody says, see there, I told you, you've got to be baptized to be saved. No, you don't. The Bible's very clear about that. So it's what the Bible teaches us elsewhere that helps us to understand what he is saying here. Now, if you want to believe that this has a reference to, to the Word of God, there's, there's sufficient proof of that because the Bible talks about the cleansing of the Word. In Ezekiel, it talks about the Holy Spirit being the water also, by the way, so you could even make an application for that. And so, you know, you could talk about all of the different ways in which this word water could be used, but it had to do with the physical birth. Isn't that what they're talking about, by the way? Jesus says you must be born again. He's thinking spiritually. Nicodemus is thinking physically. And so if you want to apply it that way, you know that Jesus said you're going to see the kingdom of God, you've got to be born of water. There has to be a natural birth, but there also has to be a spiritual birth. The one thing he's not telling us is that we are saved through baptism. That'd be salvation by works. And listen, if you if you could be saved by works, how much would it take? Think about that for a little while. If you could be saved by works, How would you ever know whether you're saved or not? Because you'd never know if whether you've done enough or not. There would be no assurance. There would be no security. I'm glad that the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. This is what Jesus is talking about. He's just simply trying to drive home the point to Nicodemus that this matter of the new birth is something that is spiritual. It's something that is within you. And that's why he goes on and he says, verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. So here's the explanation as to the spiritual birth as opposed to the physical birth. Now, that's the message, but notice the mystery here in verse number 9. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? How can these things be? I think he's starting to get the message, don't you? Because all of a sudden, there is a mystery here. And being a part of that Jewish religious system that depended on self-righteousness, Nicodemus is blinded to the fact that salvation is an act of God. It's not a work of man. You're not born again by self-effort. You don't become a child of God just because you want to be a child of God. You want to go to heaven when you die. You say, it's not something that you cause, but it's something that God Himself does. He is the one who saves us. He's the one that births us. So we, we, we owe it all to Him, as the song says. Now, verse 10, here Jesus speaks as to the means of salvation. Jesus answered, aren't you glad that the Lord has an answer for the mysteries? Jesus answered. You, you know, 
had it been Brother Kenneth or I, we, we might have said, when Nicodemus said, how can these things be? We'd have probably scratched our head and said, man, I don't know. You got me. I'm as dumb as you are. I, I can't figure it out. I, I'm just trying to understand. I'm just preaching it, you know, because I'm supposed to, but I can't figure it out. Let me tell you that a lot of things, including the mystery of the new birth that our mind simply cannot comprehend. But Jesus answered. He has an answer for those mysteries. Notice Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? In other words, you're a teacher of the Old Testament in Israel. Other people are depending upon you. You're supposed to be an expert as to what the Old Testament teaches. And by the way, all of the facts are revealed in the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't preaching anything new. There's nothing new about this. The Lord spoke through Isaiah and through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel and these Old Testament prophets. He spoke about the fact that He would give us a new heart, that the Spirit would come and dwell within us and change us and reconcile us to God. So this isn't new information. And so Jesus says to him, you're a teacher and you don't understand this? That that indicates that the facts are all there. Christ was the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament prophecies and types. Sometimes we wonder, well, what was the, what was the tabernacle all about? Or what was the temple all about? And why'd they do this? And why'd they do that? And they had the, you know, all, all a system of worship where they sacrificed animals and so forth. And what was that all about? It was all about this, folks. Everything involved in that Old Testament worship, all of those things served as a type, a shadow, a type in some way of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Were you to go into the temple, for example, or the tabernacle, every piece of furniture, everything you saw there in some way represents the Lord Jesus Christ. When you attended the feast and you watched, for example, the sacrifices of the animals, those sacrifices were typical of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And and so the Old Testament book is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And and that's what all of these teachers were, were teaching throughout all of these centuries. Now, certainly we don't have time to go through all of the Old Testament and gather up all of the fragments of those prophecies and talk about each one. But let me just show you at least four things that are very clearly revealed in the Old Testament concerning the new birth. Number one, salvation requires that the innocent die for the guilty. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, back to the sin of Adam and Eve, and where God provided for them the coats of skin. Think about that. Look, that's not something they did for themselves. That's something God did for them. The innocent animal had to die for the guilty 
sinner. Not only that, but blood had to be shed. Whenever I think of that, I think about Abel's offering, which required the shedding of blood. Blood had to be shed. You see, God was putting in the mind of those people in the Old Testament that if you're ever going to be reconciled to me, brought back into a state of oneness, if we're ever going to have a relationship, then the innocent has to die for the guilty. Blood has to be shed. And then we see that salvation depended upon the death of Christ. Remember how that the Lord had promised to send a Messiah. That's what every Jew looked forward to. The Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who would come. The Christ. And if you don't think He's in the Old Testament, just read Isaiah chapter 53 where it speaks in such vivid colors about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. By the way, that is where the Ethiopian eunuch was reading whenever he learned about Christ and was saved. Amen? And, and it's, it, the Lord said to Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the Old Testament and you haven't figured these things out yet. But there was something else. And that is that salvation demands faith. And you go back to Numbers chapter 21. This is the illustration that Jesus is about to use. Notice verse number 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. You think about that brazen serpent. You'll remember that because of the rebellion of the children of Israel, God sent fiery serpents among them, and those serpents bit the people, and they were dying. Moses is distraught. Moses goes to God. What do we do? Lord, help us. And, 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 and the Lord instructed Moses, I want you to make a brazen serpent, set it upon a pole, and uh, whoever, whoever looks upon that serpent shall be saved or shall be delivered. Now, notice he didn't tell each individual, I want you to construct a brazen serpent. He didn't tell anybody that I want you to have to go out and climb the pole in order to be saved. All you got to do is look. By the way, that's something anybody could do. But can you imagine trying to convince some of those people in that day? I mean, here's somebody that's just lost one of his family members and he, he is emotionally a wreck. And, and, and in fact, he is getting bitter toward God. Why would God allow something like this to happen to us? After all, we're Jews, His people. Why would God let something like that happen? And, and so maybe he's bitter at God. He's angry. He doesn't understand. And Moses says, look, I got the answer. We, we look. We can't undo what's already happened, but I, I've got a solution. God told me that if you'd just if you'd just go out and just look on that brazen serpent, everything will be all right. You'll be safe. Now I've got a feeling since human nature never changes that there'd be somebody say, "You got to be kidding me, man! You've lost your cotton picking mind. That's the craziest thing I ever heard of." Who can be saved from all of these fiery serpents by going out and looking? Look, a lot of folks do the same thing today. They tell us, well, surely it's got to be more complicated than that. You know, we tell them that the only thing you have to do to be saved is to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've had people tell me, surely there's got to be more to it than that. 
Surely I've got to do something to please God. That's what religion is all about. Doing something to appease the wrath of God. But that's religion. Salvation depends on what God does, not what we do. And, and it's something that we are able to appropriate why? by simply looking with the eye of faith. Now, I read this story, really a rather simple story, don't you think? And, and it's interesting that it doesn't tell us here how Nicodemus responded. I mean, I can't help but wonder about that. Did, did, did he say, look, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with this. I, I, I'm just really not interested. Or did he say, I don't believe a word you just said. I, I don't know how he responded. Now, I do know what happened later on. I know he, he defended Jesus afterwards. I know he assisted in his burial afterwards. But I don't know all of the details, but there is an indication that some point after this conversation that he was born again, that he trusted Christ as his Savior. But the question isn't how, you know, Nicodemus responded. It's how are you going to respond? Have you been born again? And don't give me that old stuff. Well, of course, I'm a Christian because after all, I'm a church member. That didn't make you a Christian. I had a woman tell me one time, I said, are you a Christian? She said, of course I am. I was born right here in America. And I felt like saying you could be born on a mountain, but that wouldn't make you a billy goat. But, I, you know, I was trying to be nice, you know, and I didn't want to say something smart like that. But really, it, it makes about that much sense. You're not a Christian because you are born in America or you join a certain church or you do charitable work or anything else. You're a Christian as a result of being born again. And listen, that is a work of the Spirit of God. And He does that. He quickens us. That is, makes us alive only when we put our faith in Him. Every kid here over four or five could march right up here and quote John 3.16. They all know exactly what it says. Right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth, right? Believeth on Him. Remember whenever, whenever Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail and God, God created a rock concert, there was an earthquake, the doors flew open, let Paul and Silas out, the jailer ran in, said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What do you reckon Paul said? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There is no other solution, folks. Now let me, let me quickly give you four reasons why you need to be born again. Number one, to escape hell. If you're one of those who believe that we're not going to know whether we go to heaven or not until after we die and we stand before the Lord and He weighs our good works on one side and our bad works on the other side, and if the good works outweigh the bad works, He'll let us in heaven if they don't, well, then, you know, then we might go to hell or limbo or someplace else. 
whatever your particular belief might be. A lot of people believe that. But we'll just have to wait and see whether we make it into heaven or not. You know what the Bible says? He that believeth not is condemned already. If you're here today and you've never been born again, you are just one heartbeat out of the devil's hell. I, look, you, 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 maybe you're thinking, well, I don't think you ought to try to scare people to get them saved. Well, I'm telling you what, they're in a scary situation. You need to be born again that you might escape hell, but also you need to be born again that you might enter heaven. Notice Jesus said in verse number 5, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. There is no relationship with the Lord. There is nothing after you die so far as heaven. And I don't know about you, but that's where I want to go. Amen? I can't think of a better place to spend eternity than in heaven. But it all depends on whether you've been born again or not. It doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on what Jesus has done for you. You must be born again. But then there's a, then there's a secondary reason that you need to be born again, and that is that you might enjoy peace. The Bible says, There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. And I'm telling you, before I received Christ as my Savior, I didn't have peace. It didn't make any difference how much money I made or what I did. Nothing ever really satisfied me. Nothing. Nothing. And it's the same way with every unsaved person. If they will be honest, they'd have to tell you, just like Solomon did. He said, you know, I tried wine, I tried works, I tried wealth, I tried women, I tried everything under the sun, and it was all vanity. That's a life without Jesus. But oh, listen, what wonderful peace there is in your soul knowing, knowing for certain that you're going to miss hell and make heaven. But there's yet another reason, and that reason is to experience change. And we could go on down through verse 19 through verse 21. He talks about the light coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light. But he goes on and he says that everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, and neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds might be made manifest that they are wrought in God. You see, there's a change that takes place. 2 Corinthians 5.17 talks about us being a new creature. The moment we're saved, God changes our nature. He, that is, He gives us a new set of desires. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but we want to be. He begins to change us. And that affects our character. It affects our conduct, the choices that we make, the course that we take, the condition that we're in, the company that we keep, our confidence, our courage, our comfort. Everything changes as a result of that. All because of what Jesus did. I mean, after all, if He can turn water into wine, 
if he can turn the stormy sea into a placid pond, if he can take the chiefest of sinners like Paul and make him the great apostle, if he can take that Samaritan woman and make her a trophy of grace, think about what God can do with you. And if you're here today and you're just absolutely dissatisfied with life, I, 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 I want you to know this is the answer. You must be born again. I think the biggest problem, not just with Nicodemus, the biggest problem with any of us is in seeing our need. That's what the Lord's trying to drive home to this fella. He's got a wagon load of religion, right? But he doesn't have Jesus. He doesn't have this peace that passeth all understanding. He doesn't have hope. He doesn't have joy. He doesn't have the things that Christians have. And all of this is missing. And the Lord's trying to get him to see his need. Listen, if you can get a person to actually see their need, it's easy to show them the solution. I had reached a place in my life where I realized there wasn't anything in all of this world that could possibly satisfy me, nothing. And I knew that as much as I wanted to change, I did not have the power to be anything other than what I was. So somebody said, why don't you go to church with me next Sunday? Well, I thought at least it can't hurt anything. And they said, besides that, we want you to come and help us out on the softball team. So I thought, I'll go out there and do that. And, and all of a sudden, I began to hear old Brother Gene Hankins from Paducah, Kentucky. And old Brother Gene just preached Jesus. And it was just a few weeks that I realized what I'd been missing and what I needed. If you're here today and you don't know that you know that you know that you know that you'd go to heaven if you died, then you need to do something about it this morning. And there's only one thing you can do about it, and that's to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Him. He's trustworthy, by the way. He's done everything He ever promised He would do. He said He would come and He would die for us, right? He said He's going to be buried. He's going to be raised again the third day. He, he did all of that. What more do you want Him to do? You can trust Him. And if you will, if you will, this will be the greatest day of your life. And your eternal destiny depends on your decision. Would you trust Him this morning? Let's all stand together. Father in heaven, how we thank You for the blood that was shed on Calvary for the demonstration of your great love for us, that even though that we are vile, filthy sinners deserving of hell, yet you loved us so much that you gave your Son who died on the cross that we might be saved. Lord, we're so thankful that we have the verification of all of his claims, the fact that he was raised from the dead and has given evidence that he is who he said he was. And because of that, we have the assurance that we can trust Him. And I pray today for that man, woman, some boy or girl, whoever it might be, that's here without the assurance of heaven. And Lord, it might be that they've been battling this for many months now, that empty place in their heart, that longing that's in their life. They know something is missing. Lord, 
may they turn to you this morning and trust you with all of their heart and be born again. For we beg it to happen this morning here and now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would